everyone, this is Kim C, and you're listening to The Year of Underrated Stephen King. This is a literary podcast where I, a university fiction teacher, analyze the overlooked and unnoticed titles from the world's best fiction author. Hey, hey, everybody. Happy 2022. Happy New Year once more. It's the year of the tiger. Shout out to my fellow 1986 babies out there. I'm also waving at you 1974 and 1998. Hopefully this is going to be a lucky one for us this year of the metal tiger. I don't know about you, but I think mine is starting off pretty rad as I'm kicking off 2022 with the most kick-ass constant reader interview ever, you guys. Oh my gosh, I am bursting. I am so excited to present my guest to all of you. My friends, you know this individual for his work as podcast co-host on one of the most beloved Stephen King podcast out there, the iconic Losers Club, as well as Halloweenies, both found on the Bloody Disgusting Network. This gentleman has received his Master's of Fine Arts from the University of Texas at Austin in playwriting, and a few weeks back, this blessed creature gave me the most spectacular early Christmas present by chatting King with me. Everybody, I got to nerd out with Mr. Dan Caffrey. I can't believe it. I can't believe I get to say that. I can't believe it happened. I, while recording, was grinning ear to ear. It was one of those grins that, no joke, my cheeks were hurting, my face was in pain. It was completely too much, ridiculous, over the top. I had to hold in all my fangirl meltage, all of it, but some definitely leaked out for sure. You will definitely hear it. And when you do, just know I'm I'm over here turning beet red. But alas, I have loved Mr. Caffrey's work on the Losers Club for a long while now, as we are both MFA recipients, and I've always enjoyed his thoughts on the novels explored, some of the really layered topics, the super interesting zones they get into regarding King and his work, and what a joy it was to speak to this incredibly brilliant and super talented King fan. You are all in for quite a treat. So without further ado, please check out my conversation with the oh-so-wonderful Dan Caffrey from The Losers Club. This is so cool. Thank you so much for giving me some of your time. Uh, So I kind of want to start off with asking, where did it begin, your King journey? Where did it all sort of stem from? How old were you when you read your first King book? And what was it? So I think ever since I can re- remember, really, um, I would see Stephen King books lying around the house. My dad's a huge Stephen King fan. And my mom, I think, casually read his books like a lot of people do growing up. And so the first time I remember seeing one of his books, it was a paperback version of The Dark Half. Um, I don't know if you've seen this one. It's like two sparrows, and they're outlined in red, and they're kind of kissing each other, it looks like. So I remember I saw that lying around. And... I remember hearing my parents discussing it because they were both reading it and they were both kind of marveling at how dark it was even for king like it felt like an especially nasty book and so i asked if i could read 
the dark half and read Stephen King myself. And they said, no, maybe when you're older. And then when I was nine, I think I just saw more and more Stephen King books around the house and the Stan miniseries had just come on. Um, I think it was ABC and they did let me watch that. And I was blown away by it, really freaked out by it. So I asked if I could, you know, finally start reading his work. And my dad let me start with cycle of the werewolf which is violent, but I think it's almost more like a comic book because it has that calendar format and there's a lot of really cool illustrations in it. And it's easy for a nine-year-old to read. There's not, like, I don't know, if you start with It or something, there's obviously, oh, yeah. you know, a lot of violence. And a, and a lot of, set. not that my parents were against exposing me to sexual situations in books, but I think you don't quite understand it when you're little. Like, there's certain phrases in It and a lot of his other more adult books that I, I just think would have gone right over my head. Even when I was a little bit older and I read them, they still went over my head. So I started with Cycle of the Werewolf. And then once I got into middle school, I kind of gradually started working my way through all of his books and got really obsessed with him. And I, at that point, my parents didn't really care what I read. Um, yeah, and then just, you know, I'm 30, I'm 37 now, and so I've just been a lifelong fan. And obviously starting our own podcast, my obsession has just grown and grown and grown. And then once he introduced certain books that connects everything into this huge universe of his that just leaves more uh, material to explore. Um, I, I want to say about like 12 years ago, I'd gone a period of not reading his new books. So I think he had 15 or 20 books that I hadn't read. And so I blazed through all those. It was like Duma Key and Full Dark No Stars and a lot of kind of like late career King that I, that I made sure I read so I could round out his whole bibliography. Um, yeah, and once we started the podcast, I think I was the only person on there who had read everything he's put out. But I've since fallen behind. I haven't read Billy Summers yet. I haven't read Later. I haven't read Hearts in Suspension. I haven't read The Institute. So I feel like now I'm a little bit <laughs> falling behind. But that's that's like my very abbreviated uh, version uh, of, of me falling in love with King. Oh, and I should say, too, I mean, like a lot of people, I think more so than so many other genre writers out there, King really does combine human with the the horrific so so well i think people the reason he's so popular is because people are, are drawn to his characters i think there are plenty of writers who know how to be grotesque and dark and disturbing and all that but even among his best contemporaries i don't think anyone writes human characters that we can really relate to especially if you grew up middle to working class uh quite like he does like that's what makes him truly truly special to me just that marriage of of being human and being scary um, yeah, anyway, that's really a long rambling answer. I hope, that, I hope that was clear. Oh my gosh, I loved it. I relished every word because before I kind of dive in and, into how beautifully that was put, um, I've always admired your thoughts about King. Um, and it's, oh, it's like, if you were a K-pop star, you would be the one I'd have a poster of, you know, like <laughs> in terms it. of, because it was like, okay. Um, cause I always kind of, you know, I think we academics kind of seek each other out a little bit where I'm like, Hey, he's in school like me. Cool. Um, and so I would always kind of turn up the volume a little bit more um, concerning some of the thoughts that you had about King. So what you just said was extremely prolific, and it really was a succinct way of kind of identifying how how it feels to really, really love King's writing uh, and why I feel there can be a marriage of King and academia, uh, because I think he's been ostracized quite a bit we can talk more about that later but um yeah the humanity and the horror is a really fantastic relationship um 
what, did you know that he was a horror writer when you first read King? Like, were you, did you know he was a scary book author or was that something that you kind of just found out? No, I definitely knew he was horror because I think when I saw that first dark half book and then I started to see his name pop up a lot, I asked my parents, you know, who, who he was and, I, and, you know, obviously he's branched, like you said, outside of horror quite a bit now. Um, but I, if you were going to describe Stephen King in one sentence to someone, right, you'd say the master of horror or the, or the world's most famous horror novelist or the most celebrated horror novelist. Um, yeah, so I definitely knew what he was all about going into it. I think because we, they were talking about the dark half and explained what the plot of that book was to me, and that is one of his nastiest novels, I think I was pretty well primed for it once I went in. That's not to say his stuff didn't scare me. I mean, I, I read Salem's Lot, I want to say, when I was once I was in middle school, like 10 or 11, and that like really just kept me up at night. Um, and so it, w- it wasn't like them prepping me took away the effect of his horror. But um, yeah, I definitely, knew, I definitely knew the subject matter that he focused on before I read his work. Very, very cool. Um, this is uh, when I wanted to start a Stephen King podcast, it was going to focus on the underrated works because um, being a fiction emphasis for my MFA, I kind of gravitated to that area. And when I started to fall in love with King, I was just focusing on the craft. And mm-hmm. I found I could observe the craft in a much greater way in some of these underrated titles that people didn't talk about quite often. And so uh, do you have uh, any favorite underrated works or works that you feel should be more popular but they're not definitely so i feel like this is a little bit of a cop-out on my part because i always talk about it on the podcast which maybe means i I, it's not underrated you know because i'm giving it a lot of a lot of uh representation but the one i always come back to is the richard bachman book blaze i think it's his most recent bachman book have you read that one I haven't, but is that one the kind of uh, the John Steinbeck-y one where he's kind of channeling Mice and Men a little bit? Totally, yeah. It's a total Mice and Men riff um, with a little bit of a twist that I won't spoil here, but it's... uh, Cool, cool. Yeah, it's kind of a of mice and men riff, but uh, from like a hard-boiled crime perspective. It's really short. It's... It's mean, but it also has some hope to it and some optimism. I don't mean it's mean in its ending, but it's mean in that, like, you know, the main character is a criminal and he's he's the George from Of Mice and Men. Um, I think I don't know. It's funny because I feel like his Bachman books get celebrated by a lot of people. And it's not that I don't like them. I love The Long Walk. Um, I like Thinner. But I think The Running Man and Roadwork and Rage, um, I don't know. They're, ju- they're just not my favorites. And... I think they have these reputations of like, oh, they're like his short, darker books. But I don't know. I don't think they're any darker than Pet Cemetery or It or anything like that. But I feel like Blaze is is the one Bachman book that really, really, really lives up to that reputation. Like it's shorter. It's more realistic than a lot of his horror work. Um, it It's thorny and packs a punch, but it's still really digestible. And it's funny because I feel like it's not talked about in the same breath as some of the, the earlier Bachman books, those you know four or five originals. Um, and maybe it's because it came out later i think it came out during a pretty prolific period for him where he was cranking out a lot of more celebrated novels um but yeah blaze i feel like just never gets gets talked about i don't even know if anyone else on the podcast on on the losers club has read it maybe they have at this point but yeah i think it's great i got i was at a um there was a bar in austin called um posse east which was like our grad school bar i'm sure you probably had one too that you went to and uh, one or two, yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like the ones right in your cab. It's like not a great bar, but it also is great because you're there all the time and the people are yep, there. Yeah, that was the trick. And so they had a 
it had a wall of just like used books that you could read and uh they had a first edition of blaze and so i took it off and i'm like hey how much do you want for this and they're like just take it and so <sighs> i have I, that and that felt like such a fine to me and it felt like such a good memory that i'll associate with you know socializing and seeing one of your favorite books on the shelf so Yes, I mean, there's a ton of underrated King out there, I think. I mean, Duma Key is another one I think is great that no one talks about. From a Buick 8, I feel like people really hate, and I, I don't get it. I think it's one of his strongest novels. But when you say underrated King, and obviously this is the underrated Stephen King podcast, when you say that phrase to me, the one, like the flashing book that immediately jumps to my mind on the marquee is, is Blaze, which I guess is technically by Richard Bachman, but you know what I mean. Totally love it. It absolutely counts. And I am so thrilled to hear that because that I'm creating my list for next year's reading. So Blaze will definitely be a part of that. I'm so glad to hear good things. And I'm also so thrilled to hear you're a Duma Key fan because I am a mega fangirl for that novel. Mega. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know why people give that novel such guff. I mean, it, it gets a little trippy at the end, but I grew up mainly in Florida. So I, and you know King lives there for like half the year, maybe even all year now. Um, and I think he takes the imagery of the state and the wildlife, and he really turns it on his head, its head, and makes it scary. Like I remember, there's an image of a heron, like when when everything's kind of going nuts in the end. There's an image of like a heron flying upside down through the air, and there's alligators. So I really feel like he takes Florida's already a weird, scary state. <laughs> he takes the imagery associated with it and makes it even weirder and scarier. So, yeah, huge Demi Key fan. I don't know why people hate that book so much. Oh, agree. Agree 10,000%. I That would be – that's the one that I would I – would contemplate selling a kidney to try and get that one mainstream <laughs> or, like, try and get a good film adaptation because the gothic beach – the mm -hmm. horror of it all is it's so well done it's just i'm a mega huge drooling fan for duma key so i'm glad to hear you like it i had been talking for a while about making a movie of it I, yeah i don't know if it ever happened though well i mean i guess something i should ask you so what for you what's your criteria for a book being underrated if it's a king book is it just more of like anything that's not like a classic like the dead zone or whatever or is it does it have to have like actively bad reviews or do you just kind of go off of a gut feeling yeah, kind of a combination of all of them. I like the, I don't like the, or rather, I'm looking for the ones with those mediocre reviews, like the mm -hmm. ones that are kind of like the two star, three star, as well as the ones that like you just don't see mentioned when they don't have a film adaptation, um, ones that are kind of just dusty on the shelf. Okay, uh, yeah, that, no, that makes sense. Yeah, because like I really loved The Dead Zone, and I know that people uh, feel very strongly about like the movie because Cronenberg did it, and I was like, okay, like this is, this is one, but like the story of that one is is heartbreakingly good, um, and yeah, just the non conventional, um, the non horror ones, the not the carry the the, the heavy hitters. I was yeah. like, okay, these heavy hitters, let's look behind those big shadows. Like, what else is there? And there's some really good stuff and there's some really beautiful writing. And I was such a literary person. I still am that I'm like, D is anybody talking about this? Is anybody uh, looking at this gorgeousness? Everybody missed it because you they, you want to go on that horror thrill ride. But it's like, no, 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 no. We, we need to pump the brakes here and talk about this. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I mean, I guess maybe a way to think of it, too, is if you were going to talk to either just a casual Stephen King fan or, or maybe someone who doesn't know his work at all, but, like, everyone knows what Carrie is, everyone knows what The Dead Zone is, everyone knows what It is, Pet Cemetery. Yeah, so that, that, that sounds like criteria that makes sense for me. 
Yeah. And uh, the whole kind of birth of the podcast was to have a conversation with some of my literary pals, like my poetry major friends and, and you know, my other fiction major friends who I, I told them I was reading a King book and they kind of gave me that look, if you know that mm. look, like the I'm judging you um, terribly. Um, and I was like, there's no, there's got to be a way for, for to bridge this gap to to get the uh, the lit snobs and the MFA <laughs> people to to take a look at King in in a, in a different way in a in a way that shows this guy is the is the best at this craft like effortlessly great prolifically great yeah totally yeah I love it I something that I mean I I tell this anecdote a lot on the, our podcast but uh, at UT Austin where I went to school they had this thing called the Harry Ransom Center which is just collections of um of like any number of great artists they have like they'll have like you know tennessee williams original manuscripts there a ground pose writing desk or whatever it is they just have a ton of stuff and i went there and i uh i checked out they had a bunch of like king first editions that are really hard to find but then also in the Stephen king collection it had a copy of carrie a paperback copy of it that David Foster Wallace had taught his students when he i, I forget what school he was at somewhere in the midwest in missouri oh i think God. And it was really funny because you open it and it's just like handwritten notes by David Foster Wallace pointing to observations about Carrie. And it's nothing, um, it's, it's nothing super stuffy or hard to get into it. Just like we'll circle a phrase and be like 70 slang or, Oh, this is a total Kingism. And so it's interesting because it showed that, you know, he, this writer who's expect or who's respected in all these academic circles was a huge fan of his. And I think taught Carrie to his classes, his literature classes very straightforwardly. And, and, and honestly, I'm not even a huge David Foster Wallace fan. I couldn't get through the infinite jest, but no. it was really cool to see the <laughs> kind of convergence of worlds of like this really highfalutin, I guess you'd consider a postmodern academic writer. And then yep. Stephen King, who, you know, has jokingly referred to himself as the, a Big Mac and fries of literature, or whatever. <laughs> Which I, I don't know, and I wonder now because he's, you know, he. I think the Man in the Black Suit won like the O. Henry Prize, and he's had some films that have had Oscar prestige. So I do wonder. I'm like, are we get are we getting away from that? Hopefully, or do or do people do academics still turn their nose down at him? Because I had a similar experience in undergrad. Uh, he, I had a I had a teacher who was actually friends with Stephen King, and it, someone brought up Stephen King's work in class. And then immediately apologized. Like, oh, sorry for bringing up Stephen King in a fiction writing class. And our teacher was like, why? Our teacher was like, why would you apologize for that? He's like a great fiction writer. And he's like, well, you know, he's just kind of like commercial and stupid or whatever. Um, so it was, and then and our teacher's like, no, Stephen King's amazing. Um, and he, once again, I'm not. I, I know you know you could look at like Cormac McCarthy or imagery in their sentences and be like, oh yeah, like what they're doing is so eloquent, blah blah blah. But once again, for me, it just really really comes back to characters and mm -hmm. i i don't know i don't i don't think anyone does it quite like him when it comes to characters a lot of times in the podcast people are asking oh what what other horror authors do you like and not that i don't read other horror novels that aren't Stephen king but as far as reading front to back like all of their work i think part of the reason i've been able to get through all Stephen king stuff and maybe not clive barker and i love clive barker too but part of why it's really easy for me just to blaze through Stephen king's work is because i see myself in a lot of those characters and i see people i know in those characters i see people i don't like in those characters and clive barker is amazing but i for him clive barker i'm more interested in the ideas and the visuals and the abstractions and the moral challenges he's bringing up not so much 
oh man, Clyde Barker came up with this amazing protagonist. I feel like I feel like I'm more drawn to like the cerebralness of Clyde Barker's stuff and the humanness of of Stephen King's stuff. Oh my gosh. Firstly, the David Foster Walt, holy crap, that I did not know that story. So my brain has melted a little bit. That's crazy. That... I think I have a picture. I'll, I'll email it to you. I think I still have a picture of the some of the annotations that were in the book. Oh, that melts me. That just melts me heart and soul because, mm-hmm. oh gosh, because yeah, everybody in academia, like infinite jest is like, oh, it's like the, U- it's like the, the Ulysses, you know? It's, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's just bloated and highfalutin and no, who, I mean... I think if you get through it, it's it's a huge badge of snobbery. You know, nothing against <laughs> I, if you actually do enjoy it. But <laughs> yeah, no, I, could, I I found it in a little library, and I always said if I found it for free, I would read it. And I try, and I got like two hundred fifty pages into it. And it just yeah, yeah, not, and not to disparage it or any. Obviously, right. a lot of people love it, and he's very well respected and was a talent in 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 and of himself. But yeah, it just wasn't for me. I couldn't. I mean, but I I don't know. I like I like like Thomas Pynchon. And I do I do like some postmodern authors. It's not like I can't get into that kind of book. But yeah, I just couldn't find any focus in it. There's just like nothing for me to grab on. And I I tried for 250 pages and I gave up. Yeah, I I came from like a steady diet of like just strict literary authors from my MFA program, like these really, you know, dense, uh, very sad alcoholic (laughs) uh, (laughs) artists who with a lot of, you know, dense material. And then, you know, at the age of 26, my brain's cooked. I have this degree and I'm just grabbing full darkness stars off of a shelf. Mm. And I just had my, my whole soul opened up by this guy who was effortlessly doing everything they did but giving it to me faster and more yeah yeah like stronger and better i guess and yeah it's it's just oh um i i so enjoy your your thoughts on um everything previously mentioned <laughs> just Thank in you. terms of like oh uh, yeah i i definitely think as you said i'm hoping we can find a find that I think despite his fantastic, you know, Oscar worthy adaptations and these, the O. Henry prize, it's still, like you said, like there's still this like, oh, he's a genre writer. He must be Mm -hmm. dismissed. He's a popular fiction author. Therefore, even though I've never read him, I'm going to judge him as lacking merit. And it just drives (laughs) me nuts. It drives me nuts. And so this whole sort of endeavor was to kind of look at the craft more and mostly just try to debate my friends. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That's a podcast art pretty much. Yeah. Just to debate the literary community in a very gentle way, as well as make some friends with some lovely King people who are lovely. This community is fantastic. Mm -hmm. In your opinion, what do you feel is your worst or least favorite Stephen King novel? And why is that? Or, or collection or novella. Totally. I we once is another one. I feel like I'm always giving it guff, but uh, yeah, it's got to be Road Work, which is also a Bachman book. <laughs> um, I think, I think because most people have read Ro- Road Work so long ago that they forget that nothing happens in it. Because I feel like on the cover you have uh, the Barton Dolls with the gun, and 
the police are surrounding his house and the wrecking ball, et cetera, et cetera. That really doesn't happen to the very, 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 very end of that novel. And the rest of it is all this really dreary character development. And he's such an unlike, uh, in my opinion, unlikable protagonist. Um, he picks up this young hitchhiker and I don't know, has a sexual relationship with her. That's kind of gross. He's just kind of walking around bemoaning the state of the world and complaining all the time. And to me, that's all really the book is. I mean, there's some, stuff with a sick family member, but that there's just, it doesn't move. There's not a lot of action going on in it until the very end. And I think because of that cover and because it's a Bachman book, people weirdly remember it as being this action filled character study. And yeah, I just, I don't get the love for that book at all. Um, and, it, and honestly, if we're just going off pure visceral gut instinct, when we had to read it for the podcast, it took me forever. I wasn't on that episode. So it wasn't like I had to get it done, you know, uh, on like a strict deadline and right. it's a short book but like it took me months to get through it and i'm a really oh, fast yeah. reader so i think if nothing else i have to go off of my my gut on that like okay there's a reason this book took me forever to reread um yeah and there, there's other books of his i'm not a huge fan of i don't love sleeping beauties i think it there's too many characters in it, it like it's it's almost trying to build a small town in the way that Salem's Lot builds a small town and Needful Things builds a small town. But I think the difference between those two books and Sleeping Beauties is that the characters are super distinct in the in the two older works and in a way that they aren't. And I think if you're going to have a cast that big, everyone really needs to stand out. Under the Dome is a good example of that too, a really good small town king book. Um, so yeah, I'm not a huge Sleeping Beauties fan, but Roadwork takes the cake. It, yeah, it took me the longest to read. We still joke about Barton Dawes being just like this <laughs> like unlikable dude you wouldn't want to hang out with and not in a good way you know so yeah the, that that i think it, he'd have to write something really bad to top roadworks crappiness in my opinion <laughs> so quick question about sleeping beauties because i haven't read that one mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm hesitant to read a compilation like i haven't done um talisman or black house because it's like i don't ha can you tell what's not king oh like, you mean like that... like yeah him working together with another writer yeah yeah that's a good point i don't know because i i don't know owen um because he wrote it with his son owen king and i've read joe hill's work but i haven't really read owen king's work so to me it didn't necessarily feel like it was a clashing of styles or anything like that it just felt like it went, the book's epic i mean it's really long and there's all the there's like i said tons and tons of characters but i mean i don't know i guess it I don't want to like trash Owen King because I, like I said, I haven't read his books, but I think King's usually pretty good at that. Like King's large cast novels are usually some of his best. I'm trying to think of one totally. where, where that, I'm trying to think of like a small town novel of his that isn't good. But I mean, like I said, Salem's Lot, Needful Things, Under the Dome, those are, and even The Stand, which isn't a small town, but it has a lot of characters. And, and like Sleeping Beauties, it's somewhat post apocalyptic. Um, when I think of those, I feel like King usually exceeds at that. So I don't know. Maybe maybe there was some kind of stylistic thing with Owen that just was was clashing and not making those characters stand out. But like I said, I haven't read his books, so I don't I don't want to speak too much. Um, I will say I'm trying to think of the other collaborations. There's uh, all the Gwenny's Button Box books, which are with Richard Chismar. Richard Chismar wrote, wrote one on his own. Um, I would say Talisman. And Black House, it's it's pretty seamless. I've read some of Peter Straub's work, and to me, they feel like King novels, and it feels like it's stitched together pretty well stylistically. I don't love the talisman 
not not for style reasons, just because I think the plot meanders a bit, but like it still feels like a king book if that makes sense. Like I'm not let down by the talisman from an aesthetic standpoint, and I really like Black House, which is the the sequel to that. Have you have you read not read any of his uh, collaborations with other people? I haven't. No, I'm still kind of working on my king journey. I'm like almost forty books in, and oh, nice. so. You're yeah, and so I was like, you know, we're just gonna focus on King, and then we'll kind of save the comp, mm. like the, the um the tag team books uh, for yeah. a little bit later on. It, it is interesting with um, I mean, Sleeping Beauties is definitely its own thing. Talisman and Black House do tie into kind of the the bigger you know Dark Tower multiverse that's going on. At least if you read a later edition, they do because he retconned it. And then I just read it. It comes out in um, I think January, February. The new uh, Gwendy book, Gwendy's Final Task, which is co-written with, with Richard Chismar, that also ties really hard into the Dark Tower universe. So it's interesting because like they're written with other people, but they're really, really embedded in King lore and King mythology and King's, you know, big overall world building thing that he does. And so it's yeah. So I think I think they're definitely worth reading. I would say you can probably save Sleeping Beauties for last. It just doesn't it doesn't affect the rest of the King Cannon quite as much as the other ones do. But yeah, Tal- like I said, I'm not a huge Talisman fan, but it does feel kind of like essential reading at a certain point. Like you said, once you've gotten through his other books. Oh my gosh, this is so incredibly helpful. Uh, just to kind of, as I'm making my, my reading list for next year, but uh, I want to jump back to what you mentioned about roadwork taking you forever to finish. And I did have that same thing happen when I read the Tommy knockers this year. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people um, did. That one took me a long time <laughs> over over a month because it was just a chore. It was terrible. Um, yeah, there was a it's, yeah, I was gonna yeah. say what yeah, what about it? Because I, I don't I, it's not perfect for me, but I do like the Tommy knockers. Yeah, what about it for you is hard to finish. So I really like a lot inside. I love the Bobby Anderson. I love that sort of really progressive bond she has. Um, I'm forgetting his name, but with the other guy, uh, oh, so that, Gardner. yeah, there you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I like that. I like the town stuff. I think we just have these really, um, bloated scenes, uh, where he's kind of, where Gardner's like really drunk, like the part where he's at that grad party or the writer's party. Oh, yeah. Um, and he's just like, of, of just full of vitriol and just, you know, wasted and making a huge fool of himself that goes on way too long and he's talking about like nuclear war in russia and you're like oh my god um and he's such an asshole in that sequence yeah and and he's supposed to be but at the same time you've you do get the sense a little bit that king is like oh yeah gardner's like sticking to the man isn't he cool and you're like oh no this guy just kind of (laughs) sucks yeah this guy's a bozo um i think when i when it started to unravel for me is just the the lore the the alien lore we just didn't have Mm -hmm. any of it and so I was like, okay, I could get on board with, you know, some sort of Cthulhu tentacle thing, but I we don't have anything. We have little little sprinklings of like a an alien thing here. Um y- you know, I forget the planet. It's not Yavin 4, that's Star Wars. Altair 4. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, so I just feel he uh ran out of gas when it came to any kind of there's the town's a little hive mindy, so we've got that small town thing he's trying to to work with. We also have an area where he um, starts to do the history of the town, and I felt that didn't work. That was mm-hmm. just 
I mean, it was good content, but completely disjointed where he put it in the story. So I was like, this should have been first. If you're going to give me the history of, um, I forget the town's name. I, I've forgotten a lot about Tommy Hilker's life. Yeah, no, it's like, it. oh, it's, um, I mean, it's near Derry. What, oh, what the hell is the, the yeah, town it's called? Like, uh, it's, it's something positive, like Pleasant Summery, Somerville, something it, or um, other. Harmony or Haven or? That's uh, it, that's it. Haven, you're correct. Haven, it's right. Haven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Haven. Haven. But, yeah, I, I, and it, you bring up a good point too. I think a lot of people have issues with the the quote unquote villains and the Tommy Knockers because it's it's like dead aliens. Like you don't really yeah. even get to see them. <laughs> it's just their corpses. But yeah, yeah. It, it it is a it is like a big directionless book. And like I said, I, mean, I think me and Randall on the podcast are kind of the defenders of that novel. But it's definitely not perfect. It feels super druggy, which makes sense because he's oh, yeah. said time and time again, it's like a metaphor for addiction and him conquering addiction. But uh, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Like it definitely does lack focus to say the least. But yeah, there's a lot to like though. And I'm really glad I read it overall. I'm really glad I read it. Yeah, you gotta it, read like, all oh, of them. Right? <laughs> to, oh yeah. But I was definitely like, this is something you could really learn from. This is a King text that's like kind of, you know, polarizing in a lot of ways, but I loved the, the gardener Bobby relationship. I thought it was very progressive because it's just a friends, friends with benefits the whole mm -hmm, time, mm -hmm. which is kind of interesting for 1987. Like I felt like yeah, that I was see that a lot. Totally. So there was a lot I liked and appreciated. Um, but it just it was one that took me forever. And I I'm, I'm new to that in King. Usually there's you know, you just latch on and you're taken away and you are able to get through these books and it's a joy to do so. But Tommy Knockers was was no boy. No, not a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. I get it. So one of my, the coolest things for me and King this year, 2021, is I started my Dark Tower journey for the very first time. So I started The Gunslinger in January. A couple months later, I did Drawing of the Three, and I'm just about to finish up. My last book of the year will be The Wastelands. Oh, cool. So, That's a good one. To, good yeah. one to end the year on. Yeah. Oh my gosh, yes. And so uh, this next question is like, what are your thoughts regarding The Dark Tower? Like, the dark tower go yeah it's funny because we just started a on the uh losers club a the patreon exclusive called um uh the explore and oh my god what the hell's the uh <laughs> what do we call it it's like a specific it's like a show within a show i dan flieger is the one who runs it um oh my gosh I'm that, drawing he's a blank. He's, well. he's, no he's going to kill me. Uh, yeah, I know, I've been on like all the episodes because <laughs> I mean, to me, it just feels a Dark Tower Detour. Sorry, I just remembered it. Um, where we we really delve into like the ins and outs of the Dark Tower. So it's tricky because when well, I don't know how I don't want to spoil anything for you. How much do you know about like what the Dark Tower becomes or how it connects to his other work? So I did see the movie. Um, okay. and, I've, yeah. I've not seen the movie here. It's not very good, but um, right. Um, the yeah. performances are cool. Like I like the actors chosen. I felt like that was some. Um, so I do know that the tower has something to do with kids. Kind of like I don't know. This is just from the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, but I read the Institute, and it kind of sounds like Institute kids or uh, oh, the Breakers. Institute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I haven't read the um, Institute, but I, yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. I, right. Well, so I mean, you read the. I'm trying to think in the wastelands, and now that's more wizard and glass. You get well. All right, without spoiling <laughs> too much. Gotcha. We, you'll and you'll start to see this in the wastelands, and or uh, sorry, in, in wizard and glass, and you'll really start to see it in uh, Wolves of the Collar, which is the fifth book. Um, to say, and then actually, honestly, it progressive. I will say this: so the Dark Tower ends up connecting to 
a lot of other Stephen King properties, if not all of them at a certain point. And I won't say how, but it's, it's, um, the work becomes interconnected once you found out more what the dark tower is and you see certain characters pop up, et cetera, et cetera. And it sounds like, you know, some of that already, if you know that there's an Institute connection and all this, when that first happened with, uh, especially with Wolves of, Wolves of the Kala. There's someone who pops up in Wolves of the Kala. I won't say who, I won't say what book they're from, but there's someone who pops up that at the time was so out of nowhere and was such a cool move. It was like, oh my God, King is bridging two of his stories together. This is, I've never seen a horror writer do this. Where's this going to go, et cetera, et cetera. And it was cool and it, it, and it does remain cool. I do think, and I love, I, like as individual books, I really like the Dark Tower series, um, just as Westerns, as, as medieval fantasy, as sci-fi, et cetera. I do think at a certain point, the idea of King's works being connected and the, um, for lack of a better word, the multiverse, um, it gets a little out of hand for me. Not like it doesn't make sense, but I think it just becomes unsurprising at a certain point where you have all these Easter eggs and other characters popping up here and et cetera, et cetera. Like, I think it was really cool at first and really exciting and really novel. Um, I mean, I feel this way even about the Marvel universe. Like I really like the Marvel movies, but for me, comic, as someone who grew up reading a lot of comic books, comic books always became less interesting, interesting to me when I found out, Oh, there's actually like 600 planets or however many in the Marvel universe. And there's a Spider-Man on each of those planets. And so <laughs> if one of them dies, then there's always another <laughs> Spider-Man and the DC did it too. And, and honestly, it's just a way to sell more comic books. And so like the character deaths all of a sudden became inconsequential to me. Like, okay, well they killed Batman they killed Superman, but we know they'll be back because there's a million <laughs> Batman Superman's. It just gets boring after a little bit. It lowers the stakes, and I feel like you can just always whip that out. Now, King doesn't do that necessarily. King doesn't have, like, A, he's not doing it just for money. I think he's doing it because he's into this idea of a multiverse. But um, I think it is I, – I love the Dark Tower as a story, and I do think it's his magnum opus. I do think it becomes a crutch a little bit later on in his career for um, – it's, like, always easy to tie any book back to the Dark Tower. And – I think also the idea of multiverses and other dimensions and all this, it's so big and unwieldy that I feel like it it, it lets you be a little loosey-goosey with the rules. It's kind of like that thing where like the more you explain time travel, the the less it makes sense, you know what I mean? And it just starts totally. to feel like a trope. So that's like my complicated relationship with the Dark Tower. I really do like it, and I love the books like on their own. And I, and I will say those that seven-book stretch that you're in the middle of right now that you'll finish as its own story, I, I really love i think the ending is so beautiful to the dark tower a lot of, it's kind of polarizing but i think it like just a really eloquent comment on life and romance and the power of fiction etc cetera, etc cetera. so i think like that like as those seven volumes i love it i don't know if i love it connecting to like every last work king does which is what happens at a certain point i shouldn't say i don't like it because it would i don't know i'm like rambling <laughs> right now i'm not even, i'm like going back no. and forth between but i think i think because I think because it connects to everything at a certain point. It's cool, yes. It was cool when that happened. It was cool when you started to see all these different characters pop up. But it just it just feels easy, right? Like, it feels right. easy. Okay, I'm going to come out with this book, whether it's the Institute or whatever. And, oh, yeah, it ties back to the Dark Tower. Like, I don't need everything to tie back to the Dark Tower. You know, I like the standalone stuff just as it is. That's my big spiel about it. So, <laughs> I don't know. I, I um, love it. Yeah, it's 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 and, and it's tough because I really don't want to spoil the specifics. So it, honestly, if you can avoid spoiling what happens in like books four, five, and six specifically, like definitely just stay away from it if you can. Like like it, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts once you read five and you see this one character pop up and 
if and how cool that is. Um, so I would say if you don't know anything about what happens in five, like do your best to keep it that way until you actually get to five, because then you can experience the the newness of all that before it kind of you know sticks its fingers in every single Stephen King book and the the whole Stephen King universe. Oh, so helpful. I will do that. I will do that because yeah. yeah, I it's definitely got a very passionate fan base. And, well, and I think, I think that's the thing too. People, I feel like it's his work that people can the most, most passionate about. And I'm like, I don't, I love those books, <laughs> but I don't think they're his best. And I, I don't know if like, yeah, I don't know. Like I, I think a book like 1122 63 is like a yes. nice book in a way that, and I should say, I don't know. We, we always joke about this in the podcast. Like I, anytime I'm critical of King, which is a lot, cause I think it's important to be critical of, of the artists you love. I do always have to say with a caveat, like he's also my favorite writer, right? Like right, his, right. the number of good stories and amazing characters he's cranked out is like unparalleled to me. Like I, I so I, I do want to, I always follow up like any big long rant I have about Stephen King with like, well, also he is the best. And you know, we wouldn't, <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't have devoted however many years of my, of my life to a podcast about him with my friends if I didn't think he was the best. Um, and I'm, I'm in awe of him as a, like you said, as a craftsman as a storyteller, just as a, as a person, but like, um, you know, but that doesn't mean like, that doesn't mean he doesn't have flaws, just like the same way I have flaws as a writer. And I'm sure you have flaws and everyone else does too, you know? A thousand percent. And yeah, like with the tower, I am kind of shifting gears a little bit when I, when it comes to my analysis and, and the way I interact with the text, because with the underrated works, you know, I've got my teacher hat on and I've got my reader hat on where I'm just like looking for beautiful writing and I'm looking for, for character and strong setting and all of the things. I'm just slicing it and dicing it. But with Dark Tower, it's just plot, 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 plot. And so it's a little different because I'm like, okay, this is this is fast. This is a lot. This is world building and info. And so mm. I have to kind of shift gears um, the way I normally uh, would interact with a King novel. So I like it a lot, but it kind of feels like I'm... Um, uh yeah participating with like just plot heavy genre work and it's like yeah. okay yeah okay this is different so i am really admiring it though and uh like i cannot uh, get over the i am obsessed with this Susanna dean character like oh, oh she's my great, gosh yeah. oh my gosh like she's blowing me away with like what he's doing with that. And like this, this three in one woman. And I'm, I'm just like, yeah. And that you'll see, especially in book uh, seven, um, that really comes to see it in a really cool way. And, and I mean, that core quartet is amazing. Like, like Roland, uh, Jake, Susanna, Eddie, have you met Oi, Oi yet? I'm not sure if you've met. Yes. Oi. Oh my yeah. God. He's so precious. <laughs> I don't know if he's supposed to be precious, but like, I'm like, Oh yeah, my oh, God. No, yeah. yeah. There, I mean, that that's like, that's such a, like the content, the central content is like what really makes those books work for me. You're so invested in those people and those animals um, by the end of it. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, that that's like, and it's funny because, and I think he, he does do that so well at the front, like, especially in those first three books. And I will say book four is actually, there's a big move in book four in terms of um, tying it to other King works, but it's mostly flashbacks. So four is actually a really nice con self-contained romance um and a western I, I think i think that in eleven twenty two sixty three 63 probably stephen king's best 
just straight up romances that he's written. Um, but I was going to say, like, I, as the books go on, they get more into that, what you said, the genre world building. It becomes more about that by the end of it. And then once you go beyond those books into some of the other books that have come out, um, like Wendy and uh, Went Through the Keyhole and uh, I, I think the Institute, like you said, you'll see, you know, it kind of like seeps into everything else he does. So it, it's definitely a pivot once book five happens and that, like, it it just starts to touch the rest of the greater Stephen King universe, which is both good and bad. Like I said, when it happened, it was awesome. After he kept doing it at a certain point, I'm like, all right, like I don't, I don't need everything to be about the tower, even though technically all things <laughs> come back to the tower anyway. So, um, yeah, so I don't know. It, it's a very, it's like, it is his magnum opus, but I definitely don't think it's without its, its, uh, shortcomings. Oh, well said. And I'm so excited that there's romance because I agree with you. Um, Jake and Sadie are at the, Oh, melt me. And yeah, they're uh, still my favorite, I think. Uh, so yeah. good. So good. And I I think that he, he does it well when he when he does romance. I think he, it's, he can do and it. That's well. hard. Like that's hard for a lot of genre writers to do. I have a hard time writing I don't I don't write a lot of romance to be honest, because I, I think it's it's hard to depict two people in love and and not have it not be corny sometimes. And he just does I mean, get ready for Wizard and Glass. It's there's another really good uh good one in that book too. Um yeah, but I, I think King really, and that goes back to the humanity I was talking about. I mean, I think King has obviously been in love for a long time, um, and he believes in love, and I think that comes through in his books, even though he has disgusting shit happening in his <laughs> books all the time, too. Uh, Lissy's right. story, I think, is another another amazing yes. romance, and, and a romance between two older people, which is also hard to do. So, yeah, I'm, I'm all I'm all I'm all aboard the King romance train. Same, 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 same. Yeah, the the genuine creating a genuine connection because I kind of had a hard time with drawing of the three with Eddie and Susanna's romance because it felt a little contrived, where he's just you know he's twenty one and he just mm -hmm. all of a sudden I love you um, and I'm like mm, but yeah it does come a little bit out of nowhere. I mean it's interesting because then over the next few books he really does it's almost like he didn't do the work to have them fall in love but once they are Perfect. in love he, he fleshes it out really well. You're exactly right. That's exactly what happened. It, it kind of just, you know, I suspended my disbelief in drawing of the three and I was like, all right, all right. Um, and now I'm like all for it. I'm all about it. I'm here for it. I was like, yay, Susan and Eddie. So um, <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm so excited that there's more. So you've given me a lot of good things to look forward to. I'm excited. Um, nice. So my next question is kind of uh, isolating a character or characters um, either favorites or just ones that you admire. Is anyone do you feel would be deserving of a sequel um, or their own novel? Oh, man. So my favorite character, my favorite King character of all time, and there are many good ones. My favorite is always Larry Underwood from The Stand. Um, yeah. He, I, yeah, but a sequel, I don't know. because he. I, I love his journey in it because he's a character who could go either way. He could become like a Harold Lauder or he could become like a Stu Redman. Um, and it's funny because I don't know if either of the adaptations really lean into that as much as the book does, but I, I like that he's a good man. He's made bad decisions and he's trying to stay on the good path. And he does by the end of it. Like, I think he's the character that changes, maybe with the exception of Harold, I think he's the character that changes the most throughout the stand. And we really see him go from being completely self-centered to being completely altruistic at the end. And, you know, he's a cool rock and roller or whatever. I've always pictured Bruce Springsteen's my, uh, my favorite musician. I've always pictured, Larry to look like him and then the comics adaptation that came out he looked a lot like Springsteen but I don't know I don't know if we would need a sequel necessarily because I mean, Larry is young in the stand I think he's only in his 20s and we pretty much get his whole life leading up to that point 
The only thing I could think of is, have you have you read the standard? Do you know what happens at the end of it? I don't want to spoil it. I yet. do, I do. I did watch, I've seen both adaptations. I don't know what happened, but I got like six hundred pages in, like right mm -hmm. when everybody got to Mother Abigail's in Nebraska, and like mm -hmm. something happened in my life and I don't know what it was, but like I stopped <laughs> yeah. reading. And so I just need to start over at this point. So technically, no, haven't finished, but I, I got a, a good halfway in. I do think I mean uh this and I love the stand, and it's one of his greats, of course. I do think the book takes a dip once they go to Mother Abigail, so it becomes a little bit annoying and sanctimonious. Um, well, so <laughs> the end, of, so you know, the end of the stand. I mean, I guess yeah. the one case for sequel you could make is, you know, they get blown up at the end. Does does Larry wake up on a beach somewhere and was transported to some other world? I mean, you certainly could do that with where the Dark Tower goes, but I don't know. Oh. I don't know. If, I don't know if we like need to see that necessarily i think he has such a complete story and that's what makes him great in the stand you know what i've always wanted him to go and he does he does reference it later on but i would like to see like a a really proper sequel to salem's lot like where i just love salem's lot the town i mean in, in the book Very they do cool. go, they do go back to it but like i mean there's plenty of more vampire stuff to be had the vampires connect to, to other stuff in Stephen King later on, but I would love like, a, okay, what's Mark Petrie doing now? Is, does he have to go back to Salem's lot for some reason? I, I don't know. I, and I, I don't have like a good reason for that other than just, I love that world. I love that town. It's his, one of his scariest books for me. And like, I would like just to, just to see that again, you know? Um, but I don't, I don't know if I have like good idea for how there could be a sequel for it. Um, beyond someone having to go back and, and kill vampires. Although maybe that's good. I mean, we, like I said, I feel like so many King works now connect all these greater things. Maybe it's good just to have like a, Hey, there's a bunch of vampires alive in the town. We need to get a group of really cool characters together to go back and kill them. <laughs> just keep it really simple. You know, Buffy style. I'm, I would love that. That'd yeah. I think that'd be cool. Um, yeah, I kind of, right as you were speaking, I was like, oh, you know what? I kind of want to go back to um, Chester's Mill to Under the Dome, like yeah, post, yeah. post dome and uh, check in on that. Um, yeah, but that do you, still around. Yeah, oh my gosh, right? Yeah, yeah um, that's another, that's another, that was of the ones you mentioned, that was my favorite sort of small town one. Um, do you have, dear Dan, a favorite King villain? Favorite King villain. All right, let me think about this. I know the one everyone's tempted to say is Randall Flagg, and Randall Flagg's great, right. but, he's, but we we see him so much, and you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of like, oh man, this is there's so many good ones. Okay, and I feel you like can have, if it's helpful, you could do a top three, a top five, but if yeah. you do have a favorite, I mean, I'd have to. I know, I know, it's a cliche. Pennywise to me is as as far as the big bads go like the monsters. I mean, Pennywise is up there just because he can transform into all sorts of other villains. Um, something we talk about in the pot a lot is how we love in the book because Pennywise, you know, he becomes the shark from jaws. He becomes all the universal classic monsters. Um, he becomes, uh, you know, Rodan from Godzilla. Like he, he can turn into like all these other villains that we know. And I just think there's as a, as a kid, he was like the first King villain that really scared me. So he's got to be up there. But I'm trying to think of like a real, just a really good. I mean, Harold Lauder's up there from the stand, just from a character standpoint. But I don't even know by the end if I consider him a villain. He's because yeah. he's so sad and pathetic. Um, totally. He's someone who I think was was twisted and manipulated. Um, I'm trying to think of like a really just good. Know who I love actually. I'm sure once once we uh, 
in this interview, I'll be able to think of, of I'll be like, oh, that's <laughs> what I should have said. That's always it, how it happens. Right. Yeah. But because you, but you mentioned it, I mean, un, under the dome, I think uh, junior Rennie and under the yeah. dome became Rennie's son, because I like that. I like that when he, when the novel begins, he's already losing it. Right. Cause doesn't he, cause doesn't he like kill his neighbor, right? He kills that woman or whatever, like before, before the, the, all the dome stuff even happened. Am I, I mean, yeah, I yeah. he like, he's no, you're right. He strangles her. He's having yeah. like a migraine from his brain tumor. That's and, right. That's right. And uh, yeah. yeah, he kills her like straight away. And yeah. And so I remember reading that and thinking that was really freaky that, okay, there's already this guy who's losing it in this town and that's just going to be accelerated by this dome that comes down. And I, I don't know. I think it, it's really hard. I think it's really easy sometimes to depict, okay, it's a crazy serial killer and yeah, maybe he has a brain tumor or something, but I feel like King really gets inside his head in a, a, a way that other authors can't. Um, not that you feel bad for junior any, but like, you, how much, how can I put this without sounding like a total jerk? I think it <laughs> gives you insight into his thought process and to what this tumor is doing to his brain to the point that you follow his logic. That's not to say King is endorsing that you, um, sympathize. That you, yeah. yeah. That or you kills, kills, kill your neighbor like he does or anything like that. Cause you know, he's sociopathic. He has this tumor, but like, I think King gives you such insight into how the mind of someone like that might work and you can kind of follow the logic. And that's really, really creepy to me. Um, even, and you know, he, and he does completely grotesque. He doesn't he, like have sex with the dead bodies and stuff, right? Like it's really, he has all that ooky, like grotesque horror stuff in there too. But I think in the shell of, of someone who feels like a very real person in a way that's so chilling. Um, I think, yeah, I think anytime we can actually get our audiences to understand villains and to see where they're coming from, that becomes really freaky because then you, then you say to yourself like, well, what separates that guy from me? Is it just a brain tumor? Was he born that way? Was he raised that way? What's to stop any of us from succumbing to that kind of evil behavior? And to me, that's what Junior Rennie is. And I haven't, I haven't reread Under the Dome in quite a while, but like, I remember being really struck by him almost because that's early on, right? I think with, with, uh, where, I mean, it's like beginning of the book, right? He like goes to the yep. neighbor's house and that's right. that. And like, God, what an introduction. That's just like so freaky. Um, yeah. So that's, that's his kind of, mind. I'm just, I just have I'm opening like just the list of King books for, yeah. for right now, just to make sure that there's, I love that you chose junior Runny though. Like just mad props because I love it. I think that that was such a great investigation of, of what a powerhouse he is. And I don't think he gets mentioned a lot at all. Yeah, he's kind of a sl- yeah. You know, I'm gonna stick with him because I'm looking at all the other books. And no one's jumping out at me. Um, and yeah, I feel like that's a good unconventional answer. And I, th- I think he's. Uh, I mean, I think Under the Dome is a celebrated book. But when we talk about the great King villains, yeah, I don't think Junior's name comes up in the way that like Pennywise does or Randall Flagg or whoever. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna say Junior Rennie. That's my final answer. Oh, I love it. Um, I at present with where I'm, big Jim Rennie. He's my top. Yeah. Um, of of just. Uh, like, and the thing was, is King takes forever for him to exit the novel, like a thousand pages. <laughs> yeah. And so by the time you're, you're at the end, like I, I have so much bubbling hate in my body. <laughs> like, uh, like <laughs> yeah. it, it's, it was, it was very impressive. Like the amount of rage that I just had for a fictional character. Um, but yeah, tying in with the complexity of just his wolf in sheep's clothing mm-hmm. just an absolute just the the 
drug smuggling and like he's he's money laundering through a church and it's just so gross it's just oh, yeah. like so when much he, corruption he's almost like a, i mean I, I always look at under the dome as like a political satire i think it's really really successful political satire and he seems to i mean and because this you know this is pre like trump or whatever i mean i, th- I think he's i don't know i don't know if, if jim Rennie's supposed to be a parody of george bush or whatever but like clearly he's he's a parody of a politician right of like a oh, corrupt yeah. politician mm-hmm. um oh no actually you know what it's i'm looking on wikipedia it says a power obsessed second selectman of chester's mill based on dick cheney that's interesting um so i guess he was based on someone but either way like i think we've as far as bullying politics go and glad handing and all that you know we've that's kind of reached an apex right now not just with trump but like in my opinion, like with Trumpism, like I think the effect it's had in Washington. So it would be interesting to reread. Uh, and I'm not I'm sorry, I'm not trying to like assume your political beliefs one way or the other. But um, no, no, I th- yeah. I think like I think it'd be interesting to read this book after after the Trump presidency and just sort of like how exaggerated politics have become in general in Washington. And I I think Jim Ryan, yeah, it's this weird thing where he's like very realistic, like you said, and the and the logic is very well sketched out. But then he's all, also a total cartoon. And it's kind of funny, even though he's horrible, you know? And so, I, yeah, I kind of, yeah, big, yeah, big Jim. Yeah, the Rennies don't get enough love, I think, in the, when we talk about King. <laughs> I think they're such great characters. Couldn't agree more. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I was reading this book for the very first time in, like, March 2020, which was, oh, like, wow. the, yeah. yeah, it was, like, the world was bubbling over in all areas. And I'm just at home reading about this father and son from hell. And I was, like, I'm dying <laughs> like yeah. the well, the that, life and the art is just too much too much say, that's interesting too just to read to read under the dome for the first time during a time where like we're all kind of being confined right and like yeah, oh, yeah. You, you weirdly can't at that time you know you couldn't interact with people a ton but at the same time we're all sort of like trapped together so that's gotta be super interesting yeah I'm, i um i mean we won't get to under the dome for quite a while i don't think on our podcast what i do is like i'm rereading all the books in order that we're covering them on the podcast but i'd imagine it's going to hit a lot differently probably just hit a lot harder than, than it did when i read it back in 2012 or whenever it came out yeah i think it was uh just me dealing with my own existential dread at that time mm-hmm. but it was like in retrospect i probably shouldn't have read it but it was one of those <laughs> where you're just when you're so emotionally devastated watching, you know, serial killer documentaries is oddly soothing, you know, like, yeah, or something. No, yeah. I don't know what that is about, but yeah, in retrospect, I really feel I shouldn't because there are some rough scenes. There's like gang rape and animal mm. murder. And I was like, cheese and rice. Why did I do that? But yeah, um, it's pretty maximalist. I mean, we, it's funny because we recovered the stand like what in the, in the oh, beginning yeah. of COVID and and we we talked about the same thing a lot because I, I I don't know if you were this way for a long time when the pandemic started so like that first um after this first few months like I feel like until we moved to Atlanta in July I I had um I had a hard time like absorbing new fiction or like or just anything like anything that was new I feel like it was only I could only really revisit older things yes. and I was the same I don't know I I thought it was very therapeutic to like reread the stand and rewatch the miniseries and I think it was this strange reminder of I'm not saying the things that have happened the past year or two years now have um have been horrible and lots of people have died of course and and that's to say nothing about the you know all the all the um reassessment of like race relations that's gone on too. I mean, there's been, it's just been a lot going on the past few years and, and a lot of damage has happened. Right. 
That being said, I still don't think we've gotten to the point where it's as bad as things get in the stand, right? Like yeah. I, I, I oh, yeah. when COVID started, it was like, oh, this is like the stand. And then I reread the stand and I'm like, no, no it's not as bad as in the stand. And so that, it yeah. was weirdly therapeutic and helpful, I think, to to revisit you know, stories where the horror is really exaggerated to kind of give us some perspective a little bit. So I, I, I did think it was healthy, at least for me. Totally. Yeah. I, I loved listening to coverage on the stand of just talking. Oh, that's about, right. Yeah. You probably heard it. <laughs> yeah. yeah it was, I, it was very comforting for me um, as a listener to kind of be like, yeah, it's not Captain Trips. We're, we're, we're good there. We're okay. Yeah. Exactly. yeah <laughs> if it were, I mean, we, if, if it was, we probably wouldn't be doing this podcast right now. Right. So, right. So, oh my uh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember watching the pilot or not the pilot, but the first episode of the 2020 season. Um, CBS, the Paramount. Um, oh yeah, and, the stand, yeah. Yeah, and it was my mom and I in masks in my living room watching oh, wow. it oh, that's together. Really yeah, and I was like, "This is nutballs. <laughs> this is just." Let me just take a moment to to observe my reality. <laughs> so, um, while we're in a pandemic with masks with your family, that's pretty funny. Oh yeah, it was wild. But speaking of rereading King novels, I wanted to ask. Um, which sort of reread of a King title is, ha- have resonated with you more? Like, do you have any rereads where you're like, eh, it's, it's pretty good, but, or ones that you're like, oh, wow, that was 10 times better the second time around? Oh, yeah. Ah, oh, man, that's a really good question. I mean, there, there's certain ones like, you know, reading it, re- I'm trying to think of the ones I've reread the most, probably it, Stand, Maybe Salem's Lot and his short story collections, just because those are easy to reread. Um, one, a couple. All right, so there's a few that come to mind. So it, I think, just rereading that at, when I was in college, and I just understood everything the first time, right? Because there was stuff in that book I think reading in middle school that I didn't quite get. So that, I mean, just from a pure like, it wasn't like thematically it hit any different or less. I actually, probably hit more when I was a kid than when I was older. But like, just from a uh, a pure informational standpoint, it made more sense to me, right? When I read it as an adult, um, dead zone, the romance in the dead zone really struck with me when I reread it as an adult in a way that totally. when I was when I was younger. And I think that's just because, you know, I was married by that point. Like I, I don't think when I first read it, I had been in love really. And not that I didn't like that relationship when I initially read the book, but I know it's like you're saying before, I think, I think we, it, it's, it's hard to write romance and get that right. And I think once you've been through it yourself, you maybe just have a greater, even if, even if your romance didn't last, I think you have a greater appreciation for, for the, you know, um, for the one in the center of the dead zone. Honestly, you probably more of an appreciation if you've had something that didn't last because they don't get to have the happy ending they deserve either. Right. Um, so that's one. Totally. But honestly, if I'm thinking of like the one that just really hit me, um, on a reread it wasn't even the the full thing but it's the one story in in night shift uh last rung on the ladder when i was well i think this this happened on the podcast it was one of our earliest episodes i have a younger sister uh who i'm very close with and you know i was kind of like a jerk to her growing up not like not like horrible but just like a lot of older brothers are you know picking on her you know not not letting her hang out with me when she wanted to you know yeah all that stuff and um as I got older, when I reread that book, I, you know, I just thought about like how much I value my sister and how how much I respect her and how close we are now. And and looking and I, have you read Night Shift? Sorry, I don't. Once again, I'm trying not to. I haven't. It. No, no, I haven't. Oh, okay. But I want to. Yeah, so I've a, heard it's creepy though, so I've kind of been 
sidestepping yeah, around I mean, it. I think it's still his best short story collection. I know it's his first. He has a lot of good ones. But um, so anyway, there's this story called Last Rung on the Ladder in it. Um, I don't, do you have siblings at all or you know a child? Or? I do. I have two younger brothers, so I'm the big sister. So I oh, know okay. exactly oh, cool. what you're saying. Totally. So, so there's this, um, yeah, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that once you read it. So there's this short story called Last Ring on the Ladder that's about this relationship with, of a brother and sister. And it's the brother when he's older and he's kind of looking back on it. And um, I won't spoil it. It's short. I mean, um, but I won't spoil too much what goes into it. But rereading that as an adult and having like just once again, just sort of really grown to appreciate my sister and admire her. It really, I got like very emotional reading it and just this idea of like, you know, when you're older, you're supposed to look out for your younger sibling, but you maybe don't always do that when you're younger and it's really going to matter, you know? And I don't oh, think if, yeah. you, if, if you, if you were to ask my sister, I don't all think she would be like, Oh yeah, D Daniel is like a told jerk to me growing up and like never looked out for me. I don't think it would be like that, but I think you just examine things in yourself of like, yeah, why was I trying to be cool then? Why was I trying to act like I didn't care about my family then or this or that. And that, that like really, really hit me more, um, on that reread. And, I, and it was funny too. Cause like on the, on the episode, like we were talking about, it, I got really emotional and started crying and like, I, and, and it, it, uh, if I do say so myself, I, I think that actually did hit with a lot of listeners, not, not because like, Oh, Dan's so emotional, amazing. Just because like, Oh cool. These, these are people who are going to gather and talk about Stephen King in a way that's really honest and ties back to their own life. Right. But looking back on that episode, I get a little bit embarrassed just because, like, I don't know. I think it's become kind of cliche to, like, cry on podcasts now. <laughs> and I always hope that people don't think I was, like, trying to be, like, oh, here comes the heavy emotional moment, you know? Mm -hmm. But um, so, I, but all that is to say, I mean, the the that reaction was genuine and, like, I, I it was unexpected. And, like, it's just this little short story. But I do, and you'll probably see it, too, having younger brothers. I do think King really the dynamic of what it feels like to be close to your sibling but also maybe let them down at, at times um yeah and i think it took me being older to really realize that when looking back so yeah you should totally read night shift once um i mean it's not underrated but like you should read it at some point it's like I, I think it's his best collection by far oh my gosh i will and his short stories like give me life i love oh, them same, yeah. all like i just see his genius so much more when i engage with those but oh my gosh he spoke to my soul so much because my favorite stephen king character ever is bill denbro because uh, yeah, of nice. what you spoke of of like the brother dynamic and being the oldest sibling and taking care mm -hmm. of your younger siblings which i do quite a bit um and there's yeah like i identify with him so much and i actually just um no shame to crying on the podcast i just finished reading the green mile um and i oh, i I could not hold it in while I was recording. So totally validated there. But I, when I, when it comes, I was getting emotional just the other day because I felt like I was kind of a huge jerk with my younger brother believing in Santa and there's nine years between and I didn't get a chance to believe in Santa because I was just too curious and precocious uh, and it just yeah. didn't work. And I was such a, a piece of shit for <laughs> to my younger <laughs> brother and like, would just crap all over his Santa beliefs. And I was like getting emotional. Like, why, why did I do that? Why? Oh yeah. It's like, such a, yeah, we, you know, we're, and at the end of the day, we're kids, right? Like yeah, it doesn't mean like yeah. any of us are bad people for, for acting like kids, but yeah, you get, yeah, you get older and you're like, I would never, like, I wouldn't treat my enemy like that. Right. No. Like, like, so why was I treating my, my little, my little sister, my little brother like that? Right. It's, uh, yeah. And, and, and I mean, that's a good point bringing up uh, Bill Denborough because I mean, that's almost like to the max for him, right? Because he yep. 
you know, he didn't want to, he couldn't be annoyed with it or he couldn't be bothered with his brother. And he yep. just wanted him to get out of the house, which is why he built him that boat. And then his brother gets, I mean, they're, I mean, it's, and, oh. and they have like, they have a close relationship in it, but like that haunts him and defines him the rest of his life. Totally. Um, yeah. It's a, yeah, it's, I love Bill Denbro. I mean, all the, all the kids in it are great. Oh, they're, they're tremendous. But like, he is like, speaks to my soul and I just feel I can identify with that soul crushing regret of, and I don't have that with any of my brothers, thank God. But like, I look back on these defining moments when we were young and I was a kid too, like you said, but it's just like, I just feel crushing regret over (laughs) some of the things I did and shouldn't have done. And it's like that weird when you're the oldest, this parental responsibility that you didn't ask for, but you have anyway, I'm getting a little too psychological but you know what I mean. So I'm definitely going to read that short story. I can already feel it like squelching my heart in its grip. It sounds amazing. Oh, it's so good. I mean, yeah, you could even yeah read. They all stand alone on their own, uh, the Night Shift stories. But yeah, it's a, and they're short too. Night Shift's like a really breezy read. And I think that's, I'm trying to think. They're they're not all supernatural stories, and I mean that's not even really a horror story. Less wrong on the ladder. It's uh, there's a couple of night shift there like that. They're just these really good, kind of family um, dramas. Uh, yeah, it's 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 really excellent. I mean, I don't want to hype it too much, but yeah, I think I I think you'll like that collection quite a bit. Yeah, I kind of love um, Early King, where he's really kind of writing to pay the rent, quite literally. (laughs) Um, And I I love like sort of like the punchy ones. Uh, I just admire it so much. So um, I definitely plan on in the new year taking a look at Skeleton Crew, which I haven't heard is very successful. Um, Like there's a lot of duds in that one, but I think I'm going to start tiptoeing around that one yeah it's it's interesting because i think skeleton crew and nightmares and dreamscapes they both get remembered really fondly because there are some really really good ones in there skeleton crew especially but yeah i think ratio wise i mean they're a lot longer than night shifts i think there's just you know he's he's just not like nailing it every single time i mean it's it's crazy because skeleton crew is the mist which takes up like almost 200 pages of the book which is amazing has the reach, which is excellent, uh, survivor type. I mean, there, there's some in there that are just truly just like knock it out of the park. King horror short stories. But then there's some other ones that are total duds. Um, see how it's funny to me that they get remembered like in the same breath as night shift. Cause night, night shift to me is kind of the opposite. Like there's one or two stories that maybe don't hit quite as hard, but they're still really good. Like, I don't know. I, th- I think night shift for me is like a book full of filled with uh, home runs. Yeah, I was chatting with another um, podcast friend of mine, um, Matt, and he was saying how sometimes they come back. Is that in Night Shift? Yes, that is Night Shift. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, like that ple- that premise of that story. I was like, oh whoa. <laughs> like, yeah, it's it's like dang. very. I mean, I, and I don't I don't think that movie is as bad as people make it out to be, but it's like <laughs> very I, honestly because you're a teacher too, right? So yeah. like, um, yeah, I don't want to spoil that, but I mean, it's a uh, I think it would be extra scary to you because you're a teacher. The main character is yeah. also, a, 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 I think, I think he's an English teacher. Um, talk about this a lot on the podcast. This idea of King, King always depicts bullies as being these kind of greaser types from the fifties. Yeah. But I think, I think it's super scary because he, he doesn't always depict them as, oh, well, they had a bad home life, and so it, they're like this. A lot of times, they're just like, no, they're just like these kind of scary, aggressive kids that really aren't afraid of adults at all. And, and you see some of that and sometimes uh, they come back. Yeah. It's a, that's like one of the more epic stories in night shift also. And um, yeah, it's, it, yeah. I'd, night shift's like an A plus for me. I feel like that's like top 10 King. It's, it's really, really good. 
Oh, that's awesome. That's so cool to hear because, like, I adore the short story collections. Like, I spend a lot of time just nerding out. And even the ones where the collection as a whole is kind of, like, I really, really enjoyed this year, uh, The Bazaar of Bad Dreams, just because Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, there's a lot of heavy hitters in there that are so, like, sly and unassuming, and then you just get gut-punched, and I, I, I love it. So I, I'm a huge short story person, um, and I think I've been kind of saving Night Shift because I've heard so many good things, so I'm like, we're just going to save that one. We're going to save that one yeah, <laughs> for I mean, as long I, as we can. It's the best. I mean, I think that um, – I, I don't know. I, th- I think, like, Bizarre – I actually think his later short story collections are better than – Nightmares and Dreamscapes and Skeleton Crew. Like I, th- I think, just after Sunset, everything's eventual. Bizarre yeah. bedrooms. They're they're not quite as good as Night Shift, but they're really strong. Um, and so I feel like if you read, I feel like if you read all those and then do Skeleton Crew and Nightmares and Dreamscapes and then save Night Shift for the end, that's like a good, a good kind of like peaks and valleys experience with the short story collection. Because I yeah I don't I don't think I don't know if he'll ever write a short story collection as good as Night Shift. I mean they're really. Everything's eventual, and even Bizarre Bad Dreams, um, and just after Sunset, it's not like there are duds in there, but I mean, Night Shift is just like, he's, I mean, it's, it's that thing, right, of like, what they say, you have you have your whole life to write your first album, um, and, and same with King, I mean, this this was like, he had his whole life to write his first short story collection, or write these short stories at the beginning of his career, so like, he does feel hungry, both literally and figuratively in those, and it's there, it's just like lean and mean in a way that maybe some of his later collections are not, so yeah, I, You'll, you'll, I, I would be very surprised if you weren't a huge Night Shift fan. Nice. I love it. Um, When it comes to Stephen King endings, because you definitely seem like the kind of King fan that I uh, identify with, where you look at the journey as a whole rather than the yeah. ending. Um, But there are some endings that kind of just polarize a lot of people to the point of like hating the novel. Have you ever found that in a King work where overall the ending was so unsatisfying that you're just like nope i can't even like this book oh man i'm trying to think of if an ending has like ruined any of his books for me it's funny because i do i think some of his endings that get a bad rap are actually pretty good the one that i always come back to and it doesn't ruin the book for me by any stretch of the imagination but it does it is so at odds with a lot of what's in the rest of the book is is the stand i mean the whole um I mean, it's literal deus ex machina. It's like the hand of God coming down and activating this missile, right? Now, it's played a lot more, um, what's the right word, ambiguously in the book than it is in the movies. Um, but it's still in there. It's this idea of, like, faith being affirmed. I know that is kind of at the heart of the stand with the the heroic characters. But then I also have I have mixed feelings about that. Like, their, their heroism is tied to religion and Christianity. I don't know how I necessarily feel about that. But all that is to say... I think the stand does such a good job of being realistic in the breakdown of society, being really realistic with the moral challenges of his characters, both in Las Vegas and, um, oh gosh, where are they Boulder in Colorado? I think he's so good at that. And then I think the ending just does feel like, well, God's going to come down from the sky and save us. And I don't know. I ju- it just feels like a little bit of a cop out to me. Um, and it's, and once again, it's not something that ruins the book. I still like the very, very end once Stu gets back and the sort of uncertainty about humankind's future. Right. But when I think, when I think about the stand, the thing I always think about is, okay, I wish the stuff in the Boulder free zone was a little less cheesy. And yeah. I wish, I wish there was a way to, cause I don't know when I think about the stand, the very, the Vegas uh, climax, 
Crash came in has brought back this nuclear warhead, right? Right. I feel like there's another way to have it go off without it being the hand of God coming down. I, I don't know. Yeah. It's just like, it just doesn't sit well. I mean, it just feels really explicit and on the nose in a way that that book is not. So that's the one. When, and I, yeah, it doesn't ruin things for me, but I think as I like the rest of the book so much, it's just always a sticking point. I feel like it always becomes a talking point whenever we talk about endings or, um, or even the stand just comes up on the losers club a lot. Um, yeah. I don't know if you have strong feelings about that ending in particular, but that's the one that like, if I could rewrite it, I would, I would maybe <laughs> do something else, you know? Yeah. I think the fact that the 94 miniseries, as well as the brand new one that came out last year, uh, both depict an actual hand. So weird. I don't know why they that, do that. Like, that was, it really is. Um, because like, it, it's funny because if you look at like actual sacred texts, that's never happened in the history of mankind. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, too. like we've we've had fire from heaven or like the heavens or the sky. Like we've had fire, we've had elemental events in like sacred texts, but no. And so it is quite comical. It's a little bit comical, even yeah, if it's slightly irreverent, because you're just like, no, God. Just yeah, just like looks a little. And once again, I, I mean, I should recognize that I. I, I think the way it's depicted in the, in the novel maybe is I, I always have to go back and reread it maybe is a little bit more ambiguous, but um, yeah, I was surprised they did in the new miniseries just because that gets made fun of all the time. Like it's been made fun of a lot since the old miniseries. So it's funny that the new one like still chose to do that. There's a million of it. There's, I think you can still have this idea of, okay, they took a peaceful stand. <laughs> they just, you know, that it was, it was like civil disobedience that managed to gather everyone in one place to get Vegas wiped out. Cause the whole thing, right. Is like if Larry and Glenn and, and Ralph hadn't made it to Vegas, they would have gotten captured and they wouldn't have been, uh, you know, prepared to be publicly executed, which means Ve all the people from Vegas wouldn't be gathered in one place. So like they, they, I get the whole idea of, okay, they won by being peaceful and just by going there, that's all they had to do. But then to bring God in it so explicitly on top of that, I just it's like a hat on a hat, you know, like it could they could have gathered in one place, trash command comes back with the nuclear warhead, it goes off in some other way that's not the hand of God. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think that's just so fresh. I feel like they could have really nailed it, but yeah, that's just it never works for me whenever I revisit it. Definitely. It's it's one where it's like it's there's no other appropriate phrase, but heavy handed. Like there's just, yeah, heavy hand literally like, handed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, oh my gosh, it's terrible. But it's it's like, you know, uh if they I I make like an angelic being at the last second, you know, being so <laughs> yeah, like flat out confirming it. <laughs> totally. Um but yeah, I that one's a tricky one for me, uh as well. And I I think that that one's challenging for i'm assuming a lot of stand readers because that is such a long novel it is such a large part of your reading life um and then those are the final moments so it, it's kind of one where it's like hmm yeah that that's one to to stomach uh in in terms of upsetting yeah exactly yeah so that's always the one and like i said it's not definitely it's one of my favorite books by him but um yeah it's like what keeps it from being like completely perfect to me so i think that's why it's always going to be somewhat of a sticking point Awesome. So I have two more for you and we can kind yeah. of, um, uh, so being in academia and you did a poetry emphasis, right? 
Oh no, I actually did uh, playwriting um, at, at uh, UT Austin. So writing, writing me. plays. Oh no, you're fine. It's, it's totally I got cool. you. I knew it was a P. Okay. Uh, it's all <laughs> so good. Like, and, okay. and they always say poetry and playwriting are kind of cousins anyway. So it's all good. There you go. Um, so if you had to, if we somehow managed to cross the rainbow bridge where uh, King and academia could shake hands, if we could, if you could teach uh, a semester of King, what would you teach either a novel a short circulation like if you had the curriculum to make all king for you can do higher ed or uh high school whatever you want uh that's a great question um let's see well so you know i've had to put i i taught when i was at ut um i taught playwriting to undergrads so not fiction but um you know we and we taught i put together a syllabus of a class that i didn't end up getting to teach that was about um was, I forget what I called it. It was something about the about the idea of the monster in um, in contemporary drama. So like looking at how monsters have been depicted on stage, the different types of monsters, whether it's like a grotesque human or an actual, um, you know, non-human creature. entity. Yeah, exactly, like a creature or some internal thing or something else. Like the different types of monsters we see on stage and what they mean and why they're put to use, et cetera. I think it might be cool to do something like that with King, like to, like looking specifically at monsters in his work because he's really, he's he's run the gamut in terms of what his monsters are. You have, once again, Pennywise, which is like the ultimate monster that could be anything. You have uh, Cujo, which is a dog, right? And like, who maybe is possessed by a serial killer. Um, you you have uh you have characters like a um like you know Junior Rennie who we mentioned which is more of like a psychological monster and so uh, you have the dark half which is like you know a, a a an absorbed twin that becomes a tumor that becomes a split personality right like I feel like he's <laughs> been kind of all over the place in terms of um what kind of monsters he's depicted I think that's because he grew up as a student himself he grew up you know listen reading Ray Ray Bradbury and listening to audio dramas and reading comic books and all that good stuff. So I think it'd be, yeah. So I think it'd be really cool to do a, a semester where we read several works by him, each with a different kind of monster, identify what the monster is, what the purpose is and what King is doing with it symbolistically. So like I, so if just off the top of my head, and obviously you can't have people read like, they can't read like 20 King novels in a semester. Right. <laughs> um, so I think maybe, maybe do Cujo because that's like, a natural monster, right? Like it's a dog. Then maybe you do, um, let's see, maybe the dead zone because it has like this politician. It also has a serial killer in it. And then if you're going for some of his short stories, maybe like, oh, oh man, because I want to get it. I'd like to get it in there also. But it, I mean, it would take a whole semester in itself. Totally. So maybe, maybe like excerpts from it. And then for his short stories, maybe we do like, the raft, because I think that has a lot of symbolism in it, right? With what the raft represents. And then maybe um, let's do like Cycle the Werewolf, because that's like a pretty traditional, straightforward movie monster with the werewolf. And then do I Am the Doorway from Night Shift, because that deals with aliens, but it also deals with aliens coming from within, like body horror. That's like <gasps> my very cobbled together seven. Uh, seven text uh uh king semester but yeah yeah we'll, we'll call it Stephen king and the monster that yeah that's what we'll call it oh my gosh i love it you would have a packed lecture hall i'm obsessed i, I love it i would love it i would love to teach i mean i, I still am, hopefully we'll get to teach that the playwriting class i mentioned but it can be easily rejiggered to be uh about Stephen king and you, i think maybe you'd have to have you read uh, dance macabre 
his uh his nonfiction book about like horror in general? I have not yet. So it's um uh yeah, so it's pretty much a bunch of essays on the history of horror and how it's influenced his own work and he talks about the difference between like horror and terror and all that. You could probably have some excerpts from that because he he himself talks about monsters a lot and what they mean from an academic standpoint. Oh my gosh, I love it so much. Would would Christine make it? Because I have not read Christine, but oh is- yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Christine's great. Um, yeah, Christine. I mean, Christine and Cujo are interesting because Cujo is a dog, but it might be possessed by a person, but it's like kind of ambiguous. Christine, it's pretty explicit that the car is possessed by a person, which weirdly is kind of less interesting. I kind of like it if it's just a car, you know. But I think you there's a case to be made for Christine because it's a lot about. America's obsession with cars and teenagers' obsessions with cars specifically. So I think there's a lot to be said for um, how our obsessions can become monstrous and morph us because the main character in Christine starts to change himself based off of his obsession with this new car he has. And um, I, and I think it's in a way that like a lot of teenagers or a lot of young people can relate to because it's it's like wanting to be the cool guy all of a sudden. Um, yeah, Christine's another really good one. Yeah, I think yeah, I think Christine would would definitely fit in there. Oh my gosh, I love this so much. I because I think about this a lot actually. Um, my two ideas, I would definitely just want to teach the short stories, like look at stylistic um, mm. inspirations, because he talks about that in some of his author notes to the reader, where he's like, "I was reading a lot of Raymond Carver, and I wrote this." Um, yeah. So I love that. But I think I would kind of do, and I know it's slightly cliche, but I could do some cool things with it. Is the women of Stephen King? Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, he's got great female characters. Oh my gosh. Yes. Cause we have, you know, of course we have a lot of victims and we have like, uh, that's the trio of like the domestic abuse novels of Dolores mm. and, um, Gerald's game and Rose Matter. We've yeah. got like that kind of mid nineties, um, victimizer area. But then I think we have what I've been noticing. I think he has a lot of destroyer goddesses in his work. And I don't really think he even knows they're destroyer goddesses like Charlie McGee. Oh, um, so wait, so what is it? What's a destroyer goddess? Is that like an archetype? I mean, I obviously I know what it is from the description, but is it like a, a literary archetype kind of or Yeah, kind of like basically like the dark feminine. So you oh, cool. have you have you know, like the the mother or the matron or the bride and you know the 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 lovely uh, little ingenue he's got that but then you have the Kali like the kind of mm. um yeah she's there to destroy um and Charlie's one of them I think Susanna Dean is one of them oh totally um, yeah yeah you'll see and, too as it goes on she definitely is oh my gosh yeah I'm just like noticing you know Carrie she's a destroyer goddess also a victim and so I'm just noticing all of these very strong um women who are victims at first and then they kind of either become uh this larger than life murdering persona (laughs) um (laughs) but yeah a lot of goddess energy um rose matter i think we can argue that um or rose mcclendon daniels um lisey lisey's story we've got like we've got some stuff (laughs) we've got some stuff going on Definitely, and once again, not one of my favorite books, but uh, Sleeping Beauties has definitely has something like that. And that element of the book is actually very cool. Um, and even in Misery, to an extent, I mean, the way that Paul ends up seeing Annie Wilkes, you know, is almost this like bee goddess kind of like this kind of um, <gasps> oh, creature yes. almost. You know? Yeah, that's I think that's oh actually really I think that would be a really cool class. I mean, because that's a really specific archetype too that I wasn't aware of. So I, I think that would be really appealing to students. 
Totally. Yeah. So that is something I'm noticing quite a bit with the females is like, all right, we have these victims. We have um, this, these women who just go through so, so much. King puts them through the ringer and then they get justice. They get a lot of vengeance. It's mm -hmm. awesome. Later. But then you have like v these outliers like Charlie, who's who's totally like channeling these dark goddess, dark feminine energy, which is just out there to destroy. Um, and they don't know how powerful they are. Um, yeah, so I'm nerding out to some of the females within King, and it would take me a minute to like put together some notes, but I would love to do a class or do a panel like at a, a Comic Con convention or oh, totally. come to no, my panel. That, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I would definitely go to that panel. And obviously, like you said, you know, I like, I'm sure once I get off the call, I'd be like, oh, I should include this thing. Like, if I was ever to put it together, I'd have to really sit down and and uh, and plan it out. But also, I think there's something to be said for first instincts, too, you know? Oh, totally, totally. But yeah, so I I love hearing about King in academia. Like, that's what fuels my fire. That's kind of why I do the pod, is to bridge the two, however I nice. can. Yeah, because yeah, no, I... Yeah, because I think there's a lot of amazing hosts out there and scholars who look at the horror, which is important um, because he is so prolific in that area. But it's like, I just want to, I just, we got to praise this man for the storyteller that he is. Totally. In, yeah. all, in all ways. And I will say too, have you read his uh, on writing book, his uh, his memoir on the craft, uh, he, oh, as he yeah. calls it? It's, it's stunning. It's just stunning. Yeah, I think, yeah, because I think he, I mean, even that, I feel like I know a lot of writers who actually use that, you know, and so I think that, um, yeah, I think that alone shows right there. I mean, there there have been very few writers who have written effective craft books like that about fiction, and so I think that right there shows that there, I mean, he was he was a college professor for a little bit, and he, he started writing in college, so yeah, I think those worlds should definitely be melded more than they are. Yeah, and that's the thing is, like, like you said with your example, he apologized for mentioning King, you know, like, what a travesty, <laughs> like, oh my gosh, you know, it's like, just because someone's popular doesn't mean they're, they're not great, and I think he's yeah. fallen through the crack into that of, like, okay, just because you sell a lot of books, you must be terrible, and there's just that assumption, uh, especially in the literary world, it's like, just because we are starving students and artists and, you know, um, churning out immensely layered work and we can't sell any of it. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's okay to observe people who can't. So yeah, I could go on and on about that. But my last question for you, and I know you've probably mentioned it ad nauseum on the pod, but um, what are your top three or your top five King novels and kind of what, what put them in that zone? because I actually have they have my rankings saved, but I'm kind of going Beautiful. along I'm going along as we read, so I don't know if I've updated it in a little bit. Um, okay, so one, two, three, four, five. Okay, so the, yeah, I'd say I'm just going through the rest of these to make sure there's... I think this is a, a pretty uh, pretty sound list. Uh, yeah, so my top five, and honestly, I don't, I don't know. I don't think these are like super surprising or, you know... Yeah, especially hot takes or anything like that, but I'll just I'll <laughs> so let's see. Number one, I have Salem's Lot. And once again, that's And is it, that pardon me, is that number one like number one of them all or just a a one? Oh uh, no, this is I mean, this is the current right. I mean, like I said, this isn't um this is kind of up to date with our podcast. So I haven't included like every book in there, but I don't know if I don't know if anything that came later the exception maybe 112263 would knock out these five so um so yeah <laughs> that was a lot, like number one all time um 
like I said, I, I think the art of building the small town is so impressive in that book. And when I think about it, that was his second novel. So I feel like early on, he was already showing how good he was with large casts. And I think the metaphor makes a lot of sense. This idea of vampires being the dark underbelly of, underbelly of small town America. Um, yeah, I didn't see a lot of writers doing that at that time. And then on top of that, it's just really scary. I mean, Sal's yeah. Hodge just really scares the crap out of me when I read it. Um, totally. The Danny Glick scratching at the window. and Oh, my God, yeah. The vampires sleeping under the house and, and the trailer during in broad daylight, all that. I mean, it's just, it's it freaks me out, that book. And, you know, he is a horror novelist, so I got to I gotta give it props for that. Um, yep. Number two, I had, and, I'm, and, you know, these five could probably be shifted around depending on what day it is. I had The Dead Zone. The Dead Zone to me is not the scariest novel he's written, but I think the character work is so good. Once again, this is like early King, really showing how good he is at depicting realistic romance. Um, I like that it shows that he has a political consciousness and how he pre- uh, portrays Greg Stilson. Um, oh, yeah. Greg Stil- you know, Greg Stilson is also a really interesting villain. Um, I'm not going to totally. like, let him unseat Junior Rennie, but yeah, uh, that's on there for me. Um, three, I had Pet Cemetery, and I think. If I was that one I, is amazing, oh I was, um, you know, I, I talked before about how it's funny. The Dead Zone's not super scary, but Salem's Lot is. But if I was going to pick a scariest Stephen King novel, it would be Pet Cemetery. I love how bleak it is. I, it's funny. My wife and I are, uh, we're, uh, having our first child in June. And what oh, I've been told from, thank you. Yeah. We're super, super excited. Um, and so Pet Cemetery is always, been oh, bleak dark. to me and sad and everything but everyone i've talked to when i was in grad school and my professors um was rereading it and it was he had read it before and loved it but he was rereading it for the first time since he had had kids he has, he has two kids oh, and dang. he was like he was like dude when reading that book after you have kids it's completely scary in a very different way um so i you know we'll see i don't know if i'll be rereading <laughs> right when we have a kid but like I, I would be interested to see like how it affects me in, in different ways, you know, once that happens. Um, Night Shift, as I have as number four, just because, like I said before, just like, just a, like a rogues gallery of amazing Stephen King stories. And and some of them are just flat out grotesque and scary, and then some of them hit you differently later on, like Last Rung on the Ladder. And then coming in at number five, I have It. Now, It, I don't think it's perfect. I think It does get a little bloated. I think he gets a little lost in the ending of it and everything. But yeah. it's, if, if we're going to talk about, like, it's funny. I heard Joe Hill, his son, call his novel Nosferatu as his master thesis on horror. And I feel like it is kind of like that for Stephen King. I feel like this was written at a point where he was sort of peak popularity as being the world's you know most famous horror novelist. He had written about all different types of horrors at that point, as well as some dramas. And I think this is kind of like the apex of like, like almost like the end of King 1.0. Like, I think it's just like the culmination of everything he feels about horror and childhood and growing up all poured into one book. And once again, we go back to the scare factor. It's not just scary. Like, it's like, it, it is disgusting, which I kind of love. It's just such a foul novel. Um, and it just gets on your skin. And, and it's mostly happening. It's extra nasty because of that. So, yeah, those are my top five. Sounds Lot, Dead Zone, Pet Cemetery, Night Shift. It. I'm sure there's other books on here that can make a case for being in the top five, but those those are the ones I'm sticking to. And like I said, they're not exactly like hot takes. I, I think those are pretty widely celebrated. They're, they would not be underrated King books, right? But uh, but they are my <laughs> favorite, so I'll stick by them. That's okay. 
Yeah, I, I love that list. I really, really loved The Dead Zone, and there's a lot that I appreciate in just the tragic character of Johnny. Like, he just broke my heart so much. And um, his, I think her name's Sarah, uh, the gal, I, that is one of my favorite Stephen King dates. If you remember oh, yeah, at the beginning, incredible. oh my, yeah, oh, like yeah, that. Yeah. I think about that all the time. I don't know why. I think you're done and so well done. Um, so I, I kind of, I share a couple picks for, with you in the, in the top five. I do have it in there. Uh, that was a game changer of a novel. I think that there's the character development, like it, it, people think about the losers club and I'm sure the same with the stand, like forever, like those are the kind of characters that just stay with you. Um, and there's something eternal about childhood trauma that I think resonates with us all of just, just those fears that shape you into adulthood. It's just, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's such a big swing, which I love. Like, it, I mean, it's a really ballsy book for both the time I was written and, and now, I mean, Hey, it's, it's the namesake of our podcast. So I got to stick by it too. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. What, what were the others that were on your, uh, on your top five? Uh, definitely it, of course, uh, do McKee, do McKee. Oh, top five. Is, that's cool. See, that's a good yeah. hot take. I need, I need one of those in my, in my top five. I need a hot take. Yeah, that one is just a a gothic beach novel, um, like you mentioned, with all of this aquatic, frightening Florida horror. Um, there's also some father-daughter stuff in there that's pretty unsettling. It, it, it's very touching and unsettling. And I, I get a lot of, of the sort of dark goddess um, trope I was talking about with that novel. Because we have, really? yeah, we have a lot of beautiful feminine in terms of Edgar's daughters and then we have with the villain of Duma Key just like one of the darkest female I mean next to Annie Wilkes of course but like this very dark um, kind of very ominous hard to define female energy which is very cool so uh, Duma Key yeah I I can't get over it uh, I'm obsessed Um, Revival Oh, that's a good one. That's a really good late. That that's definitely definitely a good like underrated late career King novel. Totally. Oh my gosh, I love it so nasty so much. Too, man, that book that book is like really nasty at the end of it. I love it. Oh my gosh, right? Yeah. Um. Yeah, that one just absolutely melted me. And then I just recently finished it in all six parts, and it just melted me heart and soul. And the Green Mile. Uh yeah. Oh, you know what? I didn't. Um. Do I have the Green Mile on here? Yeah, you know what? I didn't I haven't include. I mean, I don't know if it make my top five. But it would be it would be close. I mean, that book like hits me emotionally and and uh, yeah, in really interesting ways. Sorry, I'm just looking at my list. Yeah, I guess I haven't updated it since we did the Green Mile. That's yeah, that's that's a good top five. That one. Totally, I am of course as it happens. I always draw a blank, but I know. Um, I don't remember what the last one is in my top five. Um, but I kind of do a weird thing where I have five gold medals. So the top five all get a gold medal. And then the second top five or the top 10, um, the f- five through nine <laughs> or six to <laughs> 10, they get silver. Um, and so some of the silver medalists, uh, Pet cemeteries in there for sure. I also have, and this one's such a controversial one, the girl who loved Tom Gordon. Oh, you know what's funny? We just uh, reread that and did that for the podcast. I thought it was great. Uh, that that was like oh, a five bagger for me. Um, I'm I so can't glad to hear that. that for real, no, yeah, we. I think we all. It, it was it was up there for all of us. You know, that was another one too that I liked when I was younger. 
it's funny because it's about a kid. So you think I would like it more when I was younger, but as I've gotten older, I've appreciated it a lot more just how economical it is. Like, I feel like King just knows what he's doing with that. I mean, that maybe has some dark goddess energy too with her, how she fights the bear in the end, you know, she's sort of, totally. yeah, that's such a good, she's just such a likable character too. Love it so much. Yeah. There's, I get a lot out of that. I get, and I'm so, so glad that, you like it because I've just it's it's really I feel gotten a lot of flack over the years from King people who absolutely dismiss it. So I'm so glad it's getting oh, some. No, it's it's fantastic. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's I, it shows how flexible he is as a writer because it's a lot different than his other work. And I I love him when he's at his briefest. Sometimes, like as much as I love it, you also get you know you get the sprawling nature of the Tommy Knocker sometimes too. I love when he can show that oh I, I can actually do this really effectively in a short period of time. Um, yeah, we're huge Tom Gordon fans over at the pod. Oh my god, I love it so much. I'm so thrilled. Uh, I did remember who else is in my top five: eleven, twenty-two, fifty-three. Yeah, that once we get to that book because I don't put my rankings on there till I've reread it, and I, yep. I could see that being in my top five. That's just a really really astounding book, and I haven't read it since it came out, so. Once we get to that in a few years <laughs> or whenever we get to it, um, totally. yeah, I, could see that. I could see that maybe edging out uh, whatever's in the five, number five spot. And then the one that I have read a couple times and I don't know why I just, I kind of, it was one of those that snuck up on me. Like I read it and I was like, all right. And then I read it again and I was like, okay, I'm in this. And now a super fan is story. Oh yeah. That, yeah. Another good one. Yeah. That one just, I don't know why or how it happened. Just the magical realism in that, the, the tragedy, the weirdness, the strange writing, the code speak, the puzzle nature of it. I was like, I'm obsessed. I don't know what happened. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, so Lisey's story the, that, just kept kept knocking on my door. Yeah, and I think too, once again, just showing really realistic but interesting relationship between two older adults, I think is a rare thing in horror. So yeah, Lissy's story is super cool. But the whole Booyah Moonland, I mean, that place is really freaky to me. So yeah, I'm excited to get to that one too. Oh my goodness, dear Dan, this has been amazing. Uh, I'm so thrilled to have had this time to chat King with you. My heart has grown 10 sizes, Grinch style. Um <laughs> So uh, the, I'll, I'll definitely let you get back to your holiday season, but did you want to let everybody know too? Sure. Uh, yeah. So you can obviously find me over at the Losers Club podcast uh, and Halloweenies, which is our horror franchise podcast, both on the Blade Disgusting uh, podcast network. Um, yeah. And I'm a playwright by trade. I don't really have a, I mean, theater, I should say non-Broadway theater is kind of, you know, back and forth right now because of the pandemic. Um, I've had some digital things out there, but I did just have a, uh, monologue from one of my plays, The Amphibians, published in Smith & Krause's anthology, uh, Best Women's Stage Monologues 2021, which you can get through their website. Um, or if you, you know, just go to my website, dancaffreywrites.com, uh, that has all my updates on the news section and all that. Um, yeah, and I just want to say thank you. This has been such a lovely conversation, and it's it's always great to like connect with fellow King fans, and especially ones who have studied him uh, in such detail like you have. So yeah, I'm looking forward to diving into more episodes, and yeah, happy to come back if uh, you ever want to do this again oh my goodness a thousand percent yes the door is open thank you so much it means the world i hope you have the the best holiday and congratulations on your baby oh thank you yeah we're yeah we're super excited so yeah it'll be uh this time next year we'll you know be having a, a kid christmas so it should be fun precious precious well thank you so much dan take care all right cool thanks you too see ya <laughs> Thank you.
That's a wrap, everybody. Thank you so, so much for listening to my conversation with Losers Club co-host Dan Caffrey. Mr. Caffrey, thank you so much for being my first constant reader interview of 2022, my first episode of 2022. I had the most amazing time. You are most welcome here, sir. The door at the Year of Underrated Stephen King podcast is always open to you. Please come back soon. We can discuss any topic you like, truly, whatever you want to talk about, we will make it happen. So thank you once more for being such a tremendous interview, fantastic guest. I cannot wait to have you back. Please come visit us soon. All right, everybody, for my listeners out there, just a heads up, Kim C is headed overseas for a mini holiday. So the rest of this month, I'm going to be in the Emerald Isle. I'm in Ireland and I'm going to be, yeah, off grid. Well, on the grid, but off the grid. It's going to be radio darkness on the podcast. I'm going to soak up this holiday time and do some king reading, and I need a king title for the plane ride over. However, I can't decide which one. I need your help, so please write in to the show at underratedsk at gmail and let me know which title you would like to be the very first covered on the 2022 season of the year of underrated Stephen King. So take a look at the past episodes. If there's a King title on there you would like us to cover, let me know. I am also going to post a poll on Twitter as there are a few titles I'm thinking about, one of them being from a Buick 8. I have heard good things. I'm thinking about it. I'm also thinking about Skeleton Crew, specifically The Mist. Although I'm not going to just do The Mist, I will do Skeleton Crew and kind of report on the stories individually, as I do, but we might start with that one. Or, per our conversation with Dan Caffrey, shall we do Blaze? Shall we start off 2022 with a Bachman title? That might be wild, right? That might be fun. So I'm going to post a poll on Twitter, or you can send me a quick message on underratedsk at gmail, underratedskpod at Twitter. Let me know what you're thinking. What would you like me to head into in terms of King novels. I don't think it's going to be Wizard and Glass this month. I need a little bit of a breather in between Dark Tower installments, so Wizard and Glass will probably come along sometime this spring, so we're going to pump the brakes on Roland's adventure just a little bit, but I promise more Dark Tower will be on the way this year, most definitely. I gotta find out what the hell happens on that train. Are you kidding me? Uh, That cliffhanger at the end of the Wastelands? No way, Jose. I gotta find out. So let me know your thoughts. I would love to know what king titles you guys would like me to explore. But once more, if you haven't already, please share the show with a friend. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and give the show a five star. And if you would really, really love to say Happy New Year in the most beautiful way, I would love it if you could 
tell you something nice about the show. Let's let's have a little review on there. That would absolutely wrap a little blankie around my heart. I would love that. It's a little chilly where I'm at, and I think it's going to be really chilly in Ireland. So <laughs> thank you guys so much. Wherever you are around the world, I'm sending good thoughts your way. Send good thoughts my way as well, because who knows if I'll even be able to make it out of the country, given all of the Omicron ominous, <laughs> I tried to rhyme, it didn't work, all of the COVID shenanigans might be preventing my Ireland adventures, we shall see. But if you live in Ireland, please say hi. Please recommend your favorite bookshops. Show me where I could get those sexy, hotter, and stoutin king titles. I love those new covers. Let me know where I can find some. If you are a UK listener, let me know of a bookstore near you. I'll be on the hunt for king stuff. And please say hi if you're in Ireland. Send me some restaurant recommendations. I would love to connect. But thank you guys so much for being a amazing. Happy New Year. Stay safe for my Aussies. I don't know if you're allowed to go to the beach yet, but if you are, make sure you're wearing that sunscreen. And to everybody else, bundle up. Stay safe. Write me on the show with your king suggestions for this upcoming year, and I will talk to you all very soon. Bye-bye.